Hello, I'm Kimberly Davis, and I am the Fiscal Feminist. Hi, I'm Kimberly Davis, and I'm the Fiscal Feminist. I'm also a managing director and a partner in the Bonson Group, a wealth management practice in Newport Beach, California, and New York City. So today, the topic is the big reveal, hidden financial risks and how to protect yourself. Sounds spooky, doesn't it? Because it's all about hidden things that we don't usually think about. With our busy schedules and juggling so many responsibilities, we often make some very significant personal decisions that can have financial consequences that we fail to carefully consider. We can protect ourselves from unanticipated twists and turns in situations with a little bit of forethought and planning. So what are some of these unseen hidden risks lurking around in our lives? Well, in the tapestry of life, we regularly make decisions as to who we live with, whether it's a significant other or a roommate, whether we commingle our assets with our spouses or a significant other, and how we establish our credit, whether jointly or independently. These decisions are wrapped up in personal relationships, and the hidden risks, though not patently obvious, should be considered very carefully. As always, I'm recommending an honest, open, and practical approach as the best strategy. This will allow you to be fulfilled personally, and it will protect your individual financial status. These two things are not mutually exclusive. You can be careful with your financial status and still have a fulfilling personal life. So let's get into a few examples of these hidden risks that I'm talking about. The first one is cohabitation. Over the years, marriage rates have declined, and the percentage of U.S. adults who cohabitate with an unmarried partner has risen. This is according to a Pew Research Center study and just almost everybody you know. The U.S. Census Bureau cited in 2019 that the number of unmarried partners living together in the U.S. nearly tripled in two decades, from 6 million to 17 million. That's about 7% of the total adult population. The demographics of cohabitors has also evolved and changed over time with a significant increase in cohabitation among older adults as divorce rates has risen. So that makes sense, right? People are getting divorced later in life and they want companionship after that, so they decide to cohabitate. Currently, a larger share of adults has cohabited than has been married. Pew Research reports that among adults 18 to 44, 59% have lived with an unmarried partner at some point in their life, while only 50% have ever been married, and 38% of the cohabitors have had two or more partners over the course of their life. Further, more than half of cohabiting adults have children living in the household with them. So you see, you know, we have these blended arrangements that come up over time. And again, as people are getting divorced later in life, um, or even just coming together later in life, they may choose to cohabit instead of going for the full-blown married thing. So whether it's you, your daughter, your son, a brother or a sister, a parent or a friend, it is likely that somebody in your orbit is living with or has lived with a significant other without being married. So it's no longer an issue just for young people trying to figure out if they want to marry somebody. It's kind of across the board now. So what's the big deal? Well, plain and simple, whether you choose to cohabitate because of love, 
a step toward marriage, convenience, or finances, it is probable that over time assets and money may be commingled, intentionally or unintentionally, and individuals may unintentionally acquire or relinquish certain rights because of their cohabitation with their partner. So that's where the risk comes in. So unlike married couples, property rights for unmarried couples are not afforded similar legal protections. Currently, only a small number of states permit couples to get married through common law marriage, and the requirements for doing so are very stringent, and they're much more so than you would think. So there are certain things that you have, boxes you have to check in those states that permit it to actually say that they will actually be able to say that you are equivalent to a married couple. So hence, most couples living together are not deemed to be common law married, and they don't have the legal protections of a married couple. So given that, if you're intending to live with someone for more than a short period of time, it is in your best interest to have a cohabitation agreement that spells out who owns what, how it would be distributed if you were to break up, if there would be any support payments if you were to break up to one or the other of the partners, and any estate planning issues. The agreement can also address issues while living together, such as who's responsible for which monthly expenses, how much you will each contribute to monthly expenses, and so on and so forth. So basically, it's an agreement that's a written contract between two people that are not married, which is designed to address the variety of personal, financial, and family issues you and your partner might face in the event of an emergency or a breakup. If couples do get married after living together, the cohabitation agreement will be a basis for a prenuptial agreement, and that's always recommended. So I'm going to be getting married, believe it or not, in a month. Is it July 7th today? I'm getting married on August 7th. And I'm exactly in this situation. We've cohabited. Now our cohabitation agreement is going to morph into a prenuptial agreement. And it's all good. We've we've had a nice discussion about it. Everybody's in a good place. So think about that. In one month, I will be saying I do. So now you're saying to me, right about now, you are saying all this stuff that is the most unromantic information that we could possibly receive. So why upset the apple cart and discuss this with my partner? Because even with the best of intentions, things can change in a relationship, and it is better to create a fair agreement at the outset without pressure to address what happens if the relationship breaks down later. It will save you a lot of emotional and financial heartache in the future if something comes to pass. Being practical doesn't mean you aren't romantic. In fact, I would argue that it shows you have greater confidence and trust in your relationship by addressing the issues early on. If you're so worried and fearful about discussing this with your partner, it doesn't sound to me that you're going to have that great of a relationship with that person anyway. It doesn't sound very solid. These are topics that you're going to discuss throughout your marriage finances, so you should be able to pave the way for that up front so that it doesn't become this very intense discussion every time money is brought up. So what should be included in a cohabitation agreement? Most agreements include how specific assets are owned, whether or not and how income and expenses are shared, how newly acquired assets are owned, how bank accounts, credit cards, insurance policies, etc. will be managed, how specific assets will be distributed in the event of a separation, or what process will be used for resolving disputes about property rights. If you buy a house together, address how the ownership is listed on the deed. You could either be joint tenants, 
with the right of survivorship, which means if one of you were to die, the house would go automatically to that person, or tenants in common. And that would mean that each of you would have a separate share in the house, and if one of you were to die, you could assign heirs to get your half of the house. So you want to know how much of the house each partner owns, the buyout rights, and how the house will be appraised, and who stays in the house if there's a breakup. You should also include discussion on liability for debts in the contract. Unmarried partners are not responsible for each other's debt unless they have a joint account or are a co-signer or guarantor, which is different from married couples that can be held liable for marital debts. You should also discuss support payments after the breakup for one of the partners. It may be that one of the partners believes or expects that they should get some sort of a palimony type payment. That's not a legal term. It was a term that was created in the Marvin versus Marvin case ages ago. But generally, there is no legal palimony, but you could put it into a cohabitation agreement. If one person gives up their career or stops working while you're cohabitating together, um, because that's the agreement between the partners. And then for surviving partners don't who are not married, if one of the partner dies, the surviving partner has no rights to the deceased partner's individual properties because they are not formally married unless they have left to the surviving partner by a will or a trust their legacy. So you should put that in a will or a trust so that if you want the surviving partner to inherit from you, you have to do it that way. You could also include medical directives and powers of attorney as well for your partner. So let's move on to another hidden risk area, and that's roommates. Um, That's for, you know, those of us that have a roommate because we're, you know, we're either in between, maybe we just got divorced or we're young people or whatever. We're, We're living with other people as roommates. So if you have roommates, you often share all kinds of things. And when you rent an apartment or a home, you will be required to have renter's insurance. So unlike immediate family members living together, roommates are not automatically covered on renter's insurance policies unless they are actually listed on the policy. The following are a few pointers about renter's insurance. A roommate does not have to be on the lease to be added to the policy. A maximum of two unrelated people can be on a single policy, so additional roommates will need to buy a separate policy. There's no extra charge to add a roommate, and it won't change your premium either. So you may want to increase your coverage if you have a lot of valuables, but you'll still probably pay less because you're splitting the cost of the insurance premium with your roommate. Now, beware of this. Theft by a roommate or intentional damage by a roommate is not covered by insurance, whether they're on the policy or not. So be very judicious in who you choose to be your roommate. And if you are sharing the coverage on the insurance with your roommate, all claim checks will be payable to both of you. And either person can change or cancel the policy. So again, Sharing coverage is something you do with only someone you trust. So in the roommate sphere, just be very careful with who you choose to live with, and then you can do a few things that might save you some money. And then the third hidden risk that I'm going to talk about is credit, being credit wise. So what does that mean? It's pretty much all about commingling your debt with somebody else, and usually it's your spouse. So once you commingle debt with a spouse, it's almost impossible to demingle it. So even if you get divorced, a creditor will not recognize the court's assignment of debt responsibility 
because lenders are not bound by your divorce agreement because guess what? They're not a party to it. It's only you and your spouse or ex-spouse. So that means just because you and your soon-to-be ex-spouse agree that one of you will pay the Visa card and the other's going to pay the MasterCard, it actually means nothing to the lender. It's not worth the paper it's written on. So if credit cards are held jointly, then whether you are divorced or not, the lender can come after you for repayment. Clear and simple. So if your ex-spouse does not pay the Visa card, even though the divorce decree said that he should have, and it doesn't get paid, well, the lender's going to come after you, and they do not care that you have been divorced. So keep that in the forefront of your mind. Maintaining separate credit when you're married has nothing to do with trust, whether you love the person, whether you think the marriage will last, or whether you're just a cold-hearted soul. It's just practical. Beware, though. There are a few community property states out there, uh, and they are Alaska, Arizona, California, Idaho, Louisiana, Nevada, New Mexico, Washington, Wisconsin, and Texas. And in those states, in community property states, you will both be liable for credit card debt, even if only one of you applied for the card. Community property states believe that you both probably benefited from the debt, hence you should both be liable. So what are you going to do if you live in a community property state? If you live in a community property state, my recommendation is to review credit card bills monthly, including your partners, your spouse, and monitor the charges incurred by both parties so at least you know where you stand debt-wise. Don't delegate payment to your partner and have no knowledge of balances on both of your cards, whether they're joint or separate cards, because this could come back to bite you later on, and you really don't want to deal with that after you've been divorced and then have to pay off a debt that you didn't incur. And bad credit will follow you and have many detrimental ripple effects in your life. So do not feel uncomfortable having separate credit from your spouse or monitoring it closely if you live in a community property state. Because after you, if you were to get divorced, after you get divorced, you're going to have to establish your own credit. And if you are still being kind of dogged by somebody else's bad credit, then it's going to be very hard for you to establish yourself. So this isn't me being a drama queen. It's just kind of the reality of it, unfortunately. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is the commingling of assets. So what is it and how does it affect me? This concept applies primarily to marital property, although it could apply to people who live together, and it can be a complex topic. But that said, it can be managed with some planning and strategy, which will benefit each spouse in the event of a divorce. So we kind of talked about that with the cohabitation agreement, right? We're trying to keep assets from commingling so that they can be deemed to be both, both people's ownership. So that's what we're trying to achieve, keep certain things separate. So it's best to discuss this and plan for this before you get married. It will pave the way for future harmony. And if you were to get divorced, it will save you both time, money, and a whole lot of stress. So let's say before you get married, you have some separate property. The property that you own before you get married is called separate property. If you had $20,000 before you got married, then that amount qualifies as separate property unless you commingle it with marital property later. And that would be, for example, by putting that money in a joint account with your spouse. Another example would be is if you owned a home before you got married. You moved into it with your new spouse and both of you paid the mortgage going forward. It would no longer be just separate property. Your new spouse will then have an interest in it. And should the two of you get divorced in the future, 
your house will now be considered commingled property. So if you really want to make sure that doesn't happen, I'm going to give you a few things that you can do to make sure things don't get commingled. So let me give you a few examples of how they do get commingled, though, first. You inherit money and deposit the inheritance into a joint account you share with your spouse. Those funds will become marital property. If you had inherited the money and put it in your own checking account that's, or savings account that's only in your own name, then it would remain separate property. You owned a home before your marriage, and the rest of the mortgage is paid for using funds from a joint bank account. The home will become marital property. You and your spouse combine your resources during your marriage to buy a car, a television, home, or any other type of property. That property will become marital property. You have an investment account, or you start one, that both you and your spouse's incomes contribute to. The funds in that account will be considered marital property. You have a checking or savings account that both you and your spouse are depositing funds into. Those funds will be considered marital property. Or you borrowed money from a family member and used it to benefit you and your spouse. Those funds would also now become marital property. In cases where money's owed, at the time of the divorce, it would be the responsibility of both spouses then to repay it. So to avoid the hassle of dividing marital property during a divorce, it is optimal to keep property separate or some property separate that you would like to continue being legally yours and yours alone. So how can you do this? So here are a few suggestions. One of the easiest ways to go about keeping separate property from commingling and becoming marital property is to set up a prenuptial agreement in which it is plainly stated which property will be considered marital property and which will remain separate. So this is very similar to what we talked about earlier with the cohabitation agreement. Cohabitation agreements can morph into prenups as well. So it's just really saying, this is what I want to keep mine and this is what is going to be ours. And it's just as simple as that. Um, it doesn't need to be confrontational. It should just be a very open book about about that. Um, like I told you, I'm getting married in a month. We are finalizing our prenuptial agreement right now. It's been going pretty smoothly for the most part, and it's been a good exercise for us to have this discussion. So once we sign it, then we know we've got that in the hopper. We don't have to worry about it anymore, and we can go off and enjoy our romantic marriage together. The second suggestion I have is to never use your separate property to pay off marital debts. If your parents, for example, gave you a large sum of money as a gift, don't use it to pay off your home or to pay for a credit card debt that's joint, because then that will be considered marital property. When a marriage benefits from funds, those funds become marital property. So if you own property prior to your marriage, keep your name alone on the deed, for example. And if that separate property requires maintenance, Only use your income to fund it. You should also keep strict records to prove that your spouse did not contribute to its maintenance. Before making a large purchase, such as a home or a car, consider discussing it if it should be marital property or separate property. If you want it to have an equal interest in it, use marital funds to purchase it. And finally, if you want any property purchases to remain separate, only use funds that are considered separate property to buy them and keep records about the funds used to make those purchases, kind of what I said earlier about buying a house on your own or together. So those are just a few simple things you can do to keep things organized and to take away stress later on that hopefully will never come your way, but might. So here's my take on all this. I know this may all sound very draconian, calculated, and very, very unromantic, but I don't agree with that assessment. Not at all. 
Almost half, that would be 48% of Americans who are married or cohabitate, say they argue with the other person over money. Doesn't surprise me. Two studies by TD Ameritrade have found that 41% of Gen Xers and 29% of baby boomers say they ended their marriage due to disagreements about money. According to a study of 4,500 couples published in the journal Family Relationships, if you are arguing about money early on in your relationship, watch out. That may be the number one predictor of whether or not you'll end up divorced. Hey, the stats bear out the fact that being transparent, honest, and direct with your partner about finances increases the probable longevity and success of your relationship. So, of course, it's difficult to talk about money, but why not plan a weekend trip with the intent of addressing finances in a relaxed setting or plan a dinner with that in mind? Understand that open communication about money is essential to a healthy relationship and get creative in finding ways to discuss it in a neutral and relaxed environment. Make it fun. You will have a better relationship for it and eliminate a boatload of possible problems down the line when you may not be in the best mental state to deal with it. So that's my take. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking to you next time. Have a great rest of week. This is Kimberly Davis, the Fiscal Feminist. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, And there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced here and will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance, and it's not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team in Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today.